Father, Lord, we do come uh, before you now humbly and uh, needy, Lord, and dependent, totally dependent, Lord. Independence, not good. Dependence, very good. Lord, we, we need that. We need more of that in our lives. And show us our need. Show us our lack, Lord. Show us that we are, um, in a sense, like, like newborn babes that desire the, the, the milk of the Word of God. And so help us, Lord, to, to always have that, that childlike dependence upon you for everything. And uh, help us to esteem your Word in your church. Um, we pray, God, that you would just instruct us now, Lord. Give us wisdom and knowledge. Give us understanding as we look into the, some, of the, the, some of these really deep things of theology. Would you make them plain? Help me, Lord, to make them plain for your people. And may your people um, just really seek to apprehend what it is that your scripture is teaching. Be good Bereans to test all things, to hold fast to what is good. And so we commit ourselves to you now afresh in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, um, you see the, um, the artwork I've got going on up here, right? This is Haley. Wow. Stellar. Stellar. I'm stepping up in the last days. Uh, huh? <laughs> yeah. So um, I wanted to talk about the Garden of Eden because uh, that's where we are. So if you want to turn to Genesis, um, really we, we've reached a very, very important part of protology. Uh, remember, we've been studying protology. What is protology? The study of the first things. I'm just trying to flesh out for us how foundational uh, the early chapters of Genesis are. Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. Um, beginning in verse 4. Let's just read, oh boy, let's read down to verse 17, okay? It says, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. No shrub, now no shrub of the field was yet on the earth, and no plant of the field was yet sprouted, for the Lord had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground, then the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he planted, excuse me, he placed the man whom he had formed out of the ground. The Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first was Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah, uh, where there is gold. If you guys figure out where that is, let me know. <laughs> the, gold that, the, the gold of that land is good. The Buyon and the Onyx Stone are there. Um, the name of the second river is Gihon. It flows around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris, and it flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die." Now, after that, uh, of course, we understand what happens. Um, Adam is alone, not good for man to be alone. God creates for him a suitable helper, a helpmeet, 
so that he can fulfill God's covenant demands on his life. Uh, But that's getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. Um, Notice that in my outline up here, point one is man's covenant relationship to God. Now, um, the reason why I said I'm kind of getting ahead of ourselves is because I want to talk a little bit today about covenant theology. Uh, I don't know that we're even going to get to uh, these two points, but I just thought, you know, maybe good for us um, just to kind of digress into a little systematic theology, okay? So I want to talk about the covenants um, and what are the various biblical covenants. Um, I guess we can say that we can go in order just to kind of make it even more, um, uh, just more symmetrical and more logical, right? But when we're talking about covenant theology, what theologians are saying is that there are, cer- there are covenants in the Bible that essentially control the structure and the flow of the Bible, that everything in Scripture is to be covenantally conceived. Does everybody understand that? Anybody have any questions about that point? <clears throat> no one? You sure? In the back? I got a smile. <laughs> that's almost, I guess that's on the way to a hand. I don't know. Um, so, let's begin. Number one, what, what would you say is, uh, for some of you maybe that know this, what would be the first covenant that we can speak of? So a foundational covenant in the Bible. A covenant of redemption. That's right. So I'm just going to put the word redemption um, down here. And Russell, what is the covenant of redemption? How do you explain it? That's right. It is an intra-Trinitarian uh, covenant, right? In other words, it is not a covenant that God made with man. It is a covenant that God made with himself, right? And what is the covenant consisting of? Redemption. It is a covenant that theologians have identified. And uh, fair, um, you know, to be fair, this is what some would call a, um, an extra-biblical covenant, right? Because... There is no verse in the Bible that says covenant of redemption. You see? Um, So we have to admit, that's right, the word covenant of redemption is not there. Um, But we say the components are there, right? And therefore, we have to call it something. So if you don't like the word covenant, other theologians would call it an arrangement, right? But when you begin to understand that many of the passages that deal with this issue— are covenantal contexts, uh, then you have sort of the covenantal idea kind of necessary to describe this arrangement in the intertenitarian covenant. Does somebody have a question? Over here? Mike, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yeah, you might have to do that at some point. But if they're open and they're they're reasonable or they're rational, right, then maybe maybe one strategy that I would use is I would say, look, there's many foundational doctrinal 
things in Christianity that are not, you know, chapter and verse in a sense, like the phrases are not found or whatever. For example, the Trinity. I mean, the word Trinity is not found. Uh, maybe there's not one verse that actually says we believe in three persons, same essence, right, uh, that describes it that way. But when you look at the all the data of Scripture, the only thing you can conclude is the doctrine of the Trinity. So we use things like the doctrine of the Trinity. We also use language like the hypostatic union of Christ, which is a very debated issue throughout church history, the dual nature of Christ, which now we have summarized as the hypostatic union. Well, the hypostatic union is not something that one verse will tell you, right? Fully God, fully man. There's not one verse that's going to say it that way, but that is what Scripture is teaching. So I would say in the same way, I mean, I would just kind of work through, lay maybe a covenantal foundation and say, look, God obviously very early on uses the language of covenant. Um, Many of the passages that theologians are referring to with the covenant of redemption is uh, their passages that are, again, in the context of a covenant. So, for example, the covenant of redemption, just passages that come to mind would be like Psalm 89. Psalm 89 is a, is, is a covenant that God is making with David, um, also known as the Davidic covenant. But within the Davidic covenant, there are elements that are only applicable to the messianic king, not to the literal, physical, earthly king. So it must be that uh, through the covenant of David, we're seeing that there is some prior uh, commitment to the Messiah, that is being made. Same thing, uh, for example, in um, uh, Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42, there God chooses his servant and covenants with him to fulfill the redemption of his people. I mean, there's just many, 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 many passages. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I would have to, yeah, yeah. Also, give him a good book. You know, give them a good book on this. Give them a good systematic theology and just point them to Lewis Burkhoff. You know what I mean? But if somebody is, you know, so entrenched that they're not willing to listen to reason, you know, or they're just not willing to listen to you, <laughs> you know, it's not much you can do. You can't force yourself on them. Give them good resources. Give them some passages, some texts uh, to think about. But I don't want to go so in depth on each one of these. But what would be the next one that theologians speak of? Anyone? Anyone? The Noahic Covenant? That's a little bit further down. That's even further down. Adamic covenant. That is actually a covenant with Adam or what has typically been known as the covenant of works. That's right. This is what's found in some of the greatest confessions of the Reformed faith. Westminster Confession, London Baptist Confession. There's other confessions that speak of the covenant of works because what they're seeing, and you're right, it is Adamic It is a covenant that God made with Adam, and the basis of this covenant is there in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 to 17, where the Lord puts the man in the garden, and the Lord commands him. You see this? There's a command saying, from any of the tree of the garden you may freely eat, but um, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall die. And so what the covenant of works is suggesting is, is that Adam had to obey. It's called a covenant of works because of the principle of merit or obedience. Merit or obedience. Where what seems to happen in Genesis here is that Adam is in fact in a state of probation. He is in a state of innocence, meaning he is not sinful, 
but he's also in a probationary state because he has to go beyond the 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 um, beyond the potential for death. You see that um, one theologian said the worst place you could ever be is back in the Garden of Eden. Hmm, isn't that a good place though? <laughs> right. But think about it. At the Garden of Eden, what you're dealing with is you're dealing with the potential of death. You're dealing with the with the burden of merit or obedience. You're dealing with conflict with the serpent. You see? And it is and it is therefore it is a sub what they call a sub eschatological arrangement, which means you are not in a place of consummate glory yet. Right? Everything about Eden speaks of probation. Right. Because <clears throat> what the garden did not did not grant to the man, or man didn't realize this, uh, at least under the covenant of works, right, is that he did not have righteousness. Right. He did not have, and we can say here, positive righteousness. Well, where do we get positive righteousness? Christ. Through Jesus Christ. So, upon the fall, right? Because we know what happens, right, after this section. Then comes the fall. So, after the fall, another covenant is necessary, which theologians describe as? Covenant of grace. That's right. Now, let me, let me be very fair to theologians who do not like to use this, theology, this uh, language, and I can tell who they are. Hoxema, Anthony Hokema, um, John Murray, who pff, man, I respect John Murray, John Murray almost more than any other theologian that has ever lived. Uh, there are many who do not, uh, any dispensational theologian will not use this language, by the way. Um, but those who do use it, in my, respect, in, my, in my perspective, are, you know, much more. I mean, you know, you have... Bavink, you have Owen, you have the Puritans, you have Jonathan Edwards, you have, you know, a lot of the greatest, you know, Hodge, you've got B.B. Warfield, you have, you know, many, many. So, so they quibble, like, for example, I have in my book by Anthony Hokema, who I recommend very highly to you. He wrote a book called Created in God's Image, and it's all about man and God and their relationship to one another. And in the book, he argues against the language of the covenant of works. But then at the very end of his section, he says, but we must acknowledge the truths that are that are being espoused by the covenant work. So I put in my book, ha, <laughs> because it's like, yes. <laughs> OK, if you don't want to use the language. So he, he likes to speak of it more of an endemic arrangement. OK, you say arrangement. I say covenant. Right. Uh, is it tomato, tomato? OK, maybe not. But as long as we are saying these components were present, Um. Why do I think it's a covenant? Because it has the structure of a covenant. There are parties involved. There are stipulations that are given, right? Uh, and there is a malediction, an oath of malediction annexed to this. It is attached to this, to this uh, idea of obedience where, what does he say? If you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. Well, guess what? O. Palmer Robertson, in his book, Christ of the Covenants, which is a fantastic book, by the way, that you should all own and read. Small book. It's not a big deal. Read it. 
In Christ of the Covenants, O. Palmer Robertson defines a covenant as this. A covenant is a bond sealed in blood and sovereignly administered. And so what's happening here in Genesis 2.15 is that what you have is the what you have is the threat of death. It is a life and death arrangement. If you fail, you die, right? And so the same thing is given to, for example, the Abrahamic covenant where uh, it, is, it is later ceremonialized in uh, Genesis 15 by the cutting of the animals and splitting them in half, showing that there's a maledictory oath. Malediction just means you are saying something bad will happen to you if the covenant is broken, right? And God is telling Adam something bad will happen to you if you break the covenant, if you disobey the law, if you disobey. Same thing happens to the Mosaic covenant as well. So on and on and on and it goes. And ultimately this, this blood, sealed in blood imagery is ultimately Christological, of course, because it's ultimately fulfilled in Christ, who did seal the new covenant with his what? Blood. Right? It says that in Luke, I think, what is it, 21? It says, it says this, is the, this is the new covenant in my blood. Um, right? So here we go. You have the need for another covenant because the, the, the covenant of works, Adam, well, let's put it this way, Adam one could not fulfill, right? The covenant of works, uh, 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 Reformed theology would say the covenant of works is still in force. Every human being in the world is bound to the covenant of works. And because of their identity in Adam, as their, let's say here is Adam, I don't make fun of my long neck man here, (laughs) right? As a federal head, he represents all of humanity, right? All of humanity is represented by King Adam. Yeah, that's a crown, right? <laughs> Gee, that's bad. I, I don't even cut it at the kids' uh, church over there. <laughs> mm-hmm. He represents all of his humanity. The second Adam... Right? On the cross, he represents all of his humanity. Right? So the second Adam, first Adam, right? This is this is what controls the entire Bible. I wrote a book on this. I don't know if you guys have heard of it. It's called Convert from Adam to Christ. I wrote it because the whole she's got it in her hand. Give me a break. That wasn't planned. Trish, you realize that looked really bad, right? Cue the wife. Cue the wife. Cue Trish in the back. Hold up the product of the day. <laughs> Jeez. Aww. I'm doing giveaways now in Sunday school. Okay. <laughs> Jeez. We've we got to give it away. It's almost like penance. Okay. Um, yeah, it's a covenant of works. We're trying to earn. Now we're trying to earn our righteousness. Okay, so you guys see, right? First Adam, second Adam. So only the second Adam obeys the covenant of works completely, right? Only he obeys. The principle there is that only Jesus obeys fully the laws of God, um, 
what does it say in Matthew three fifteen? right? Uh, he was there to fulfill all righteousness. It is Jesus, the second Adam. And, and uh, I've shown you this before, right? But if you go to Mark chapter 1, Mark chapter 1, verses 12 to 13, what you find there is very Adamic kind of imagery with the temptation of Christ. Jesus' temptation is Adamic. And how you know that is because, not only because he is also going through his own temptation, but because he's also surrounded by uh, animals, just like Adam was. The problem was that it, the, the Mark says he was with the wild beasts, right? Showing, some would say, showing that Jesus' temptation was even greater than Adam's because Adam was in a garden paradisical environment while Jesus was in a hostile environment in the wilderness and he was tempted far greater than Adam was, and yet he overcame. Had, had Adam overcome, then he would have had the right to what? The tree of life. Let me just show you a potential parallel, at least the idea. Revelation chapter 7, verse, excuse me, Revelation chapter 2. I think it's verse 7. Revelation chapter 2, verse 7 says this. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. How do we overcome? How do we overcome? Through our merit? Through our union with Christ, right? John Murray, who doesn't use the language of the covenant of works, we'll forgive him. John Murray says the most important doctrine in all of the Bible is union with Christ. I am tempted to agree with him. You have nothing if you don't have union with Christ. And that's why Paul uses it so much. In Paul's mind, if, you, if I could just kind of back up and let's say we can see all of Paul's the Pauline corpus laid out in like a virtual text laid out in front of us, you would see union in Christ literally everywhere. It would just emerge out of every place of all of his writings, union with Christ, union with Christ. It's in the prepositional phrases whenever it talks about being in Christ, being with Christ, um, being one with Christ, um, in him, that language, that's all union with Christ language. Um, What is Ephesians, maybe Ephesians chapter 1 verses... uh, what is it, verses 3 and 4, right? That's probably like the most explicit union with Christ language about right spiritual blessings coming to us in the heavenly pr- places in Christ, you see? And so the covenant of grace says that God has committed to save man by his grace, by grace, right? Through faith, through faith. That's what theologians are saying is that in the covenant of grace, no longer, no longer is man required to merit his righteousness. But because of the righteousness of his son, we are now going to be saved by grace through faith, by faith. And where is the where is um, where is the covenant of grace taught in the Bible? Um, Anybody know where they get this from? Anyone? How about in protology? Sorry, that, that, that should have been my question. Just in Genesis, 
1 through 3, where is, it, where is the covenant of grace taught? Anybody know? Okay. Right. Sure, sure. I think it is. I think it is prefigured there, right? Where God has to make coverings for Adam and Eve as a symbol that now, by His grace, He must cover humanity, right? And the way that He's going to to confirm them in that state of of atonement, we could almost say, right? In that state of positive righteousness is through the promise of the seed, right? And, of course, we're talking about Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the, he- on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. So God there is making a promise. And some say, well, more than a covenant, really, it's a promise. But guess what? In Scripture, the concept of promise and the, pr- and the concept of covenant are not far away. Right? Anybody can locate that? Can you think of any passage where it kind of puts together the concept of promise and covenant? Yes, sir? Galatians 3. Okay. Galatians 3. Um, I'll just read verses 11 through 14 if I could. Yes, sir. It says, Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident for the righteousness, for the righteous man shall live by faith. And then, then he goes on and talks about mentioning the covenant of works. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. And he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Yeah, and the reason why that's, that passage is so important is because um, it is, it's definitely in covenant context, right? Uh, because there in Galatians, he talks about the covenant that he had made with Abraham. And how, uh, or the promise that he had made with Abraham, and how um, a covenant that comes later does not nullify the promise that was made. Um, but there is a, there's another place, and also just real quick, as since uh, Landon has taken us to Galatians, just quickly look at um, this. This really struck me it really 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 um struck me when i read this uh verse 19 the idea that the promise so when he's saying you know it doesn't nullify the promise right um that we would receive the promise of the spirit through faith right this whole language of the promise which is really the abrahamic promise the Abrahamic covenant, which I guess that would be your connection there, Landon, right? Since he's talking about the Abrahamic promise, we know, based on Genesis, that it is a covenant, right? Uh, But look at verse 19. This is startling Christology right here. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come, now this is the most important part, to whom the promise was made. Now what does that say? What is that saying there? Who's the seed? Well, didn't he just say that? 
Didn't he just get done saying that in verse 16? Your seed, that is Christ. And here he's saying, until the seed comes, and he says, to whom the promise was made. So Burkhoff says there is no question based on this verse that Christ and God are in a covenantal relationship. I thought, you know, I quit. (laughs) Just like I quit. You know what I mean? I've been reading the Bible for 20 years and I just finally, finally realized that that verse is saying that the promise was made to the seed, to Christ. Remarkable. Absolutely remarkable. Just change the way I read Genesis now. Um, any questions or comments or anything that you guys, anything that you need filled in? Yes, sir. I was just going to, you were asking for another verse. Mm-hmm. Very good. Very good. A very similar verse to that is Ephesians chapter 2, where it talks about the fact that before you were in Christ, you were excluded from, and he calls it the covenants of promise. The covenants of promise. So what is being promised to us in Galatians, or excuse me, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, I believe, is a gracious covenant whereby God is going to redeem man. And as a matter of fact, if you look at Genesis chapter 4, right after the promise is made, let's look at the faith of Eve, right? How does Eve live in light of what God, the Lord, Yahweh, said in the garden? Look at um, the, the promise of a seed. Where she's saying, oh, wait a minute, okay, so there's a seed, so well, that's, that's going to be my seed. So, <laughs> you know what I mean? Whoever my seed is, I better be paying attention because he just made a promise concerning one of my seeds. And what's that going to be like? Now look at verse chapter 4, verse 1. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and they, she conceived and gave birth to Cain. Now what does she say? What does she say? I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now that's a very small little detail. I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. How else can you translate that? Anybody know? How else can you translate it? Um, I, I, does anybody know? Uh, I, I know you'd have to know Hebrew, but I, I don't know if any of you guys have studied how else it's actually possibly like you can translate it differently. Does anybody know? You can actually translate it, I have gotten a man-child, the Lord. Uh, and uh, every Hebrew commentary that I have interacts with that interpretation, that translation. Some would say, well, that's a little bit too, um, that's kind of like an overdeveloped theology for that early of a text. So it's probably not the right interpretation. Okay. Um, it's, just that, it's just that I'm suspicious of Moses. Because he was a theologian. Moses was a deep, deep theologian. And what he wrote is not just because God picked him up like a typewriter and out came the law. 
it's not just because, you know, uh, he was a robot and just kind of said whatever and wrote down whatever God told him. Of course he did. But we understand the doctrine of inspiration uses the human mind to inspire the written text. So what I'm saying is Moses is a very, very perceptive theologian. Um, I think he does stuff throughout the five books, the law, that make you think, wow, Moses was, Moses was developing something here. And the fact that he was under the inspiration of the Spirit almost kind of, you know, makes me even more suspicious, right? Like the divine conspiracy going on here. The reason why this translation kind of go either way, I've gotten a man child, the Lord. So in verse 1, already you have some sort, I believe, some sort of expression of faith in the seed. Could this be the one? Could this be it? Could this be the seed that will reverse the curse, that will crush the serpent? Another reason why I'm, I am um, tentative to, to, to think about this, this goes back to something we raised a while back, and this goes to Genesis chapter 5. You remember um, this concept that in a person, even the most primitive uh, people in the Bible were already looking to put their faith in them to reverse the curse. Look at the Genesis 5.28. 5.28. Lamech lived 182 years, became the father of a son. Now he was ca- now he called his name Noah, saying, This one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground, which the Lord has cursed. So this takes us right back to the Genesis account of the cursing of the curse that came after the fall and them looking to an individual who would be able to reverse the curse in a sense. Now, Noah did not provide that rest. We saw that last week. It was Christ who would give the final salvific rest, reversing the curse that resulted from the fall. Um, Okay, so covenant of covenant of redemption, covenant of works, covenant of grace. Um, And so what theologians are basically going to suggest is that when you look at the different, let's put these as subcategories. I don't want to mess anything up. So let's just let's just put under here, right under here, all the other covenants that come in the Bible. What what reformed covenantal theologians would say is that everything that follows this is sort of a. It's sort of it's sort of um, a working out of the covenant of grace. You understand that? So uh, Noah, Abraham, right? Moses, David, and Christ in the what new covenant? Okay. Do I need to move the pulpit so everybody can see? Right, but you have under the covenant of grace all of these, all of these subsidiary covenants: Noah, Abraham, Moses, no, Moshe, Moses, David, Christ. These all, uh, what they would say is that these are all simply further administrations of the one gracious covenant of God. Right? Um, Any questions? Questions? Anybody? By further administrations, are you meaning like, you know, yeah, administering it? It's the way that it comes down the pike okay. throughout redemptive history, you know, and and um, 
In one economy, it's through Noah. Another economy, it's through Abraham. Another economy, it's through Moses. It's through David. Yes, in some, in, in some of it, it is type and shadow form. So, like, for example, in the Mosaic Covenant, you definitely have the type and shadow of what is the reality, right, in the New Covenant. But, but remember, and we talked about this uh, as we looked at the book of Hebrews, but we talked about even in the types and shadows, Christ is spiritually, literally present, so as the Old Testament saint of God put their faith in the type and shadow and in what it represented, they actually received the gospel grace of God through that. But now we are no longer bound by types and shadows. We come directly to Christ, our one mediator between God and man, and we no longer need any other offering of sin, right? Uh, what does it say? Those former offerings, they were a shadow, but Christ is the, yeah, he's the acone which is a very interesting word because it literally means image, right? Uh, Acon, and so, so probably substance, essence, the NASB translates it as form. It's, it's, it's just like from the shadow to the physical property, right? The real deal, right? That's, what we're, that's where we're going in this covenantal arrangement, um, Next week, I'll get to these notes, I promise you. <laughs> this week, I thought, you know, I'm going to, in my notes, forget my notes, in my notes, I was going to talk about, like I said, man's covenant relationship to God, and that is, you know, something that's taught in the garden of God, and I thought, well, if we're going to talk about covenants, I think our church needs to get a grasp on when theologians speak of covenant theology, what are they talking about, right? Um, and it's it, and it's it's this, it's a it's a trinitarian covenant of redemption. It is an Adamic covenant of works that man fell and failed and prov- and and became the occasion for the need for a gracious covenant where God would sovereignly redeem man through His grace through Jesus Christ, that began in promise form, and was passed down through the subsequent covenants and the covenantal arrangements until at last we arrive at the new covenant. So would you call those a, a, I guess, a disclosure and greater, and greater um, clarity as hmm? they occur throughout and to the actual relation of Christ showing up with each of them more of a disclosure. And then you see in Abraham, and then you see a better disclosure in Moses. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think in these in these subsequent administrations, we l- were learning more details. We're getting more. Um, we're getting closer, right, to the s- to the essence of it, to the substance of it, to the form of it, right. Um, just like with Moses, remember that when the Mosaic Covenant comes, what is God doing? But He's taking His His people. And he's, he's lifting them closer to the heavenly ideal by constituting them as a formal nation, a formal theocracy, and ultimately, Exodus 19.6, right, a kingdom of priests, right? So that God is getting them, bringing them closer to what um, heaven is going to be like. Um, 
And I think that's what each one of these is doing, is it's, it's drawing us closer to the consummate form of things. And uh, until we arrive at Christ, which is not surprising that by the time you arrive at Christ, you have the language of consummation. For example, Hebrews, um, Hebrews chapter 8, no, no, Hebrews chapter 9, I think it's verse 26, right? It says, in verse 26 of 9, it says, Otherwise he would have need to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now, once, watch this now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's interesting, because when you think of the consummation of the age, what do you think of? Be honest. If I tell you the consummation of the age... What comes to your mind? Fire. <laughs> Terry went straight to the fire. <laughs> fire. Apocalypse, right? <laughs> you think of the end, right? You think of the end of the world, right? The problem is, notice what it's talking about. When he offered, when he made his offering, when... When he what does it say? Since the foundation, but now once at the consummation of the ages, he man, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Well, where did that happen? At the end of the world? When when did he sacrifice himself? At the cross. And so, for the author of Hebrews, the the ministry of Jesus, the arrival of Jesus, is the announcement of the arrival of the end of the age, right? No more covenants after Christ. No more administrations. We have reached the consummation in Christ. And that consummation is already not yet. Listen to the tape again, okay? If you missed anything, if you missed anything. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, to forget it, I didn't record it. Is this being recorded? It is. Good man. Thank you. Let's go to worship. Blessed are, blessed are you. Blessed are you. They walked out of the council rejoicing that they were counted counted worthy to suffer for his namesake. They were put to shame for his namesake, right? Well, brother, I hope you guys are being enriched by the theology. I bet you guys have some conversations, huh? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>